Hi, everyone, and welcome to season three of Her Story. Can't believe it's season three already. It feels like I just started this podcast yesterday. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and I am so excited to be back for our third season. I took a little break for a little bit to give myself some time to enjoy the holidays and also give myself some time to research and connect with some new guests for the show. So I'm super excited for you to hear what I have in store for the beginning of 2022. And the first guest that I have on this season for episode 66 is Natasha Perrine. Natasha teaches elementary general music in the New Orleans area of Louisiana. And she is just a wonderful educator who promotes so much SEL and literacy in her classroom. I would strongly encourage you to check out her work um, as she talks about it in this episode. Uh, you can find her on Instagram at Music with Miss P. Um, she has an incredible Instagram account and tons of free resources for you elementary general music educators out there. But anyone who's in any field of music can get a lot from this episode. So I do hope you enjoy. I am so looking forward to this season and all of the incredible guests that I have coming up. So be sure that you're following the podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And you're also checking out our website. I will be updating the resources page pretty soon. So I'm very excited about that as well. So be sure to check all those things out. And I hope you enjoy episode 66. My name is Natasha Perrine, uh, or Miss P, as my kids call me. I am an elementary music teacher in New Orleans, Louisiana. This is my 11th year in the music classroom. I started my career doing high school choir and theater in Alabama, Ireland, and Rhode Island. And then in 2017, moved to New Orleans and switched to elementary and have been on quite an adventure ever since then. That's awesome. I'm so happy you're here. Um, Just to get us started a little bit, um, what got you started in music in the first place? Well, I, this is probably not too much of a surprise, but my mom is actually a former music teacher. And uh, now as of fall of 2020, the principal of a performing arts high school in Delaware. So it is literally in my blood. Um, My earliest memories as a kid are of singing and dancing with my mom and my grandparents, her parents. And um, it's just been part of my life ever since. I remember my my first favorite song is Kokomo by the Beach Boys, but my first real uh, delve into the music slash theater world was Cats when I was three years old. Um, on the way to preschool, my mom got the cassette tape because I'm that old (laughs) and (laughs) we would listen. That was all I wanted to listen to. And, um, I mean, for that whole year, (laughs) it was cats. And so I've just really been obsessed ever since then. And I would have called myself a theater kid back in the day, but when I went to college, um, I ended up, um, doing classical music. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, my mom, 
is my earliest and biggest music influence. She taught, she actually started in elementary, but um, did most of her career doing high school choir and theater. And actually because of that, I practically grew up in the choral room and on stage at rehearsals. Um, back in the nineties, she would actually send her kids in her car <laughs> to drive 30 minutes to pick me up from elementary school. And then <laughs> I would go, and sit at rehearsals. Um, so, you know, I thought I was so cool because I was, you know, in the second, third and fourth grader with all these high school friends. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I grew up at rehearsal. And so uh, I, and I loved it. When I was in high school, I actually went, I did choir and band, um, was hardcore into it. Um, but I didn't really do theater because after school I did sports. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was always kind of strange. And people would ask, you know, why don't you and your mom go to the same school? And she used to say one perine per building <laughs> was the rule. <laughs> so she taught me piano and that was agony enough. Um, and I'm sure if you asked her, she would say the same. Um, but yeah, so when I went to college, I ended up doing um, classical voice and um, kind of got lost and mesmerized in the opera world. And actually, you know, if you would have asked me at 22, 23, what will you be when you grow up? I would have said, I'm going to be an opera singer. And I, I was actively pursuing that. I had gotten um, some young artist programs under my belt and a little bit of time in New York. And uh, after a year in New York, I actually was working at the Metropolitan Opera Guild in their education department. And my main job was running the backstage tour program. And every day I would be giving tours and training tour guides and, you know, talking to tourists coming in. And it was like, it would kill me being literally on the stage, but not performing. Mm -hmm. And um, I decided after a year of that, that I really wanted to get serious and go get my master's. And so I ended up going back to Alabama, which is where I did my undergrads and um, wanted to go train for a few months before it was time for audition season. And I was in re dress rehearsals uh, about two weeks out from my recording sessions for my grad auditions. And um, in the middle of my scene, I ruptured a vocal cord. Oh. And yeah, <laughs> it was, um, I mean, that was what, 2009. So, you know, we're almost 12 years after, and I feel like I can finally talk about that without like a huge lump in my throat and tears in my eyes. It was truly like a death, you know? Yeah. Um, but that moment changed everything because all of my plans got put on hold. I had to do speech therapy for several months and learn how to speak correctly and, or I should say healthfully, I suppose. And um, in that time after, you know, also a few months of, you know, closed curtains and couch time and lots of ice cream, um, a friend of mine needed an on-call sub for her music ed class. And I thought, what the hell? I literally have <laughs> nothing to do <laughs> yeah. and I need to make some money. Um, and so I went and I just fell in love with the kids and with the process and just, I, you know, I, I can't remember what month I started teaching, but I had ruptured my vocal cord in 
October. And so sometime in the new year, so, you know, so a few months had gone by and I was in such a state of depression. And then here I am with these little kids just singing with no inhibitions and laughing and playing and dancing. And they brought me back to life. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, I couldn't believe it. I was so nervous to go and, you know, say, I was like, I can, I'm sure I can do this, right. I'm a performer. I can figure this out. I, you know, I've been around schooling or music schooling for so long. Um, but yeah, that's when I was like, well, you know what, maybe there's something to this. And then I ended up getting my master's at Alabama, um, and the rest in, in music ed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, the rest is kind of history now. <laughs> yeah. That's such an incredible story. I mean, obviously you went through something extremely traumatic. I mean, for, for any musician losing their ability to perform is, is a huge trauma. Yeah. Um, and, and you took that and you found a way to actually make your life more fulfilled in a way it kind of brought you along this path. And that's very, very inspiring for sure. I, I know you were saying like now up until recently, it's, it's been hard for you to talk about, but I, I would encourage you to share that story um, for sure. I have a lot of people on the show that have had performance related injuries and have overcome so much. And it's so inspirational every time you hear um, how they were able to still find fulfillment and, you know, any capacity. So I think that's amazing that you, you went through that experience and you were able to come out, you know, successful in the way. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That's very meaningful to hear. It certainly is like, I would say, honestly, it is like still a process, you know? Mm -hmm. And one thing that I've really loved about teaching elementary Cause you know, when I was a, I forget, are you, what age group do you teach? I actually teach fifth through 12th grade. So I got the whole gammon, but I teach. Got band, it. So got yeah. it. Okay. <laughs> well, when I was a high school choral person, you know how the high school choir directors are. I was one of them, mm -hmm. right? Like I was into like the perfect sound and the perfect warm up and vocal technique. And yes, I still was about community and making kids feel good and confident and express themselves. But you know, there was this element of trying to reach perfection when yeah. I was a high school choral and uh, theater director. Mm -hmm. And what I always tell my elementary kids is I absolutely don't care if you're perfect. I just want you to have fun and try your best. And they don't care if I sing a note wrong. They don't even, they don't know, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. they just know that Miss P is having fun and they're having fun. And I mean, um, I bought a ukulele midway through the pandemic, I guess the summer of 20, not midway. Well, I guess we're in the third wave far before <laughs> yeah. midway. Um, <laughs> but what we thought at the time was I bought it right before school came back. And I was like, you know what? Let me just learn how to play this thing. I see all these other elementary music teachers playing their ukulele on Instagram and, you know, Facebook, whatever. I was like, I can do that. Right. And I have never, yes, I had to take piano and what, uh, you know, I can pick out what I need to pick out to run a rehearsal, to teach someone a song, but I am not even close to a concert pianist. Okay. So like my, my instrumental abilities, I wouldn't have really marked myself very high, but I was like, I'm just going to give this thing a go. And I just watched a bunch of YouTube videos and like taught myself and I have had such a like musical and creative awakening with this little 
you know, $35 ukulele from Amazon. Um, it has, it has made me a more confident musician, right? In that I can figure things out. I've started writing music. It's made me have more fun with singing and with my kids. Um, I just can't get over like how powerful this little instrument is, you know, um, that has, I guess we got derailed a little bit, but just in talking <laughs> about singing and feeling confident, you know, that, that has something that has really kind of, um, brought something alive in me in the last couple of years. That's awesome. And one of the things I noticed, um, I was checking out your Instagram before this interview. And, and one of the big things I took away from your posts and the content you teach in your class is you really promote social emotional learning in your classroom, as well yeah. as literacy. A lot yes. of your pictures inc- are, include books and things like that. And you talk about, you know, I, I noticed you have a very diverse selection of books, which I think is a great. And yes. you, you talk about how you incorporate that in your music classroom. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, those two pillars like literacy and social emotional learning and how that kind of takes form in your classroom? Absolutely. Um, The literacy piece became important for me two school years ago. So, you know, coming back in July of 2020, we were in our first, one of our first school meetings and our school leader said, Our number one goal this year, no matter what you teach, no matter what grade, no matter what subject is literacy. And, you know, us music educators always have to be thinking of, well, how do I fit into these school goals? How can I make myself relevant? How can I advocate for my program and for my kids to have, make sure they have music? And so I'm sitting in that meeting and I'm thinking like, what am I going to do? How am I going to make this important? And I thought back to when I did my ORF level one training, um, I did it at University of Las Vegas, um, uh, I guess, what, four summers ago now, man, time really flies. (laughs) And um, one of my pedagogy instructors used a lot of books in her curriculum. And I was like, man, that's just so smart. Like, you know, I wanted to do it, but I was a little afraid to try. And then when my school leader brought this to us, I was like, okay, I'm making a new goal for myself. I'm going to do a book every week. And at that point, we thought we were actually coming back to school in person, um, which, you know, for all of us kind of happened last year, kind of didn't, <laughs> who knows what's going on. Um, but r- literally, I want to say a day before kids were supposed to come back, maybe it was two, <laughs> certainly not a lot of time. We found out it wasn't safe. We're all virtual for like the first four or five weeks. And so I had to put everything online and I had already started uh, my YouTube channel and sharing things online, but I hadn't done a story yet. And I was like, well, this is a great opportunity. You know, I'll take pictures of the books. I'll be interesting with these characters. And I started having so much fun with it. And when I would get on Zoom and do with my kids, I mean, kids love to be read to. They love a story. And, um, their excitement got me more excited, which made me more committed to finding new things or finding new stories and new books to show them. And then, you know, your creativity can really just, it's limitless with a book, right? You could do rhythm activities. You could make a little melody. You could teach a dance. You could have kids create their own, um, their own compositions, rhythmic, melodic, you know, or, or whatever. There's just, there's so much possibility. And while COVID has obviously been really awful 
for so many reasons. Um, it has, I think, taught all of us educators that we are a lot more creative and resourceful than we realize mm -hmm. and um, has really, it gave me the opportunity to really explore that. And um, not only was that great for my students and I, but I was also meeting these goals that my school met, which, and I, not to, you know, be a broken record, but music teachers have to advocate for themselves. They have to advocate for their place in schools and, you know, actually doing the work in your class and then is a lot better than, you know, just going and telling someone, oh, hey, I can do this or I can do that, but showing them, showing the kids, you know, and getting them involved. Um, so that's really where it has, where, where it came from and, I just stayed really committed to it. And every week when I have kids in person, like our school year is now, I see um, the same group of students for a quarter. So I see them four times a week for 50 minutes. And, um, but when we were virtual, I only saw my kids once a week for 30 minutes. And in addition to this literacy piece, it was like, okay, we are all, pocketed away in our houses or offices or bathrooms or wherever we are doing our virtual learning teachers and students alike we don't have the same you know community access and kids can't see their friends and you know the list goes on and on of all this separation so why is a kid going to turn their camera on for miss p's music class what am i going to do and I really stopped caring about ta ti ti ta and do re mi and all of that stuff and really wanted to make it about telling these stories, stories that my students can relate to, you know, stories from here in New Orleans, from musicians from New Orleans, black and brown musicians, mm -hmm. and not just musicians, but heroes, you know, Kamala Harris becoming the first black and Asian female vice president. We did a lesson on that. Um, you know, for all of us women, that was powerful to see, but for my black and brown girls to see that they could be that one day. I mean, I just, I know how I felt as a older white woman, but can you imagine being a, a young black or brown child and, and seeing yourself reflected in that way? And so things like that, that are happening in the world, I wanted to celebrate in my class and not just celebrate it, but give my kids a chance to discuss it with each other and ask questions, a safe place where they could process these things. You know, we were coming out of Black Lives Matter movement and all of the social upheaval that, I mean, if we're honest, has been going on forever, but now there's a spotlight on it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think too many people think kids don't know what's happening or don't know what's going on. And while they might not have the verbiage for it, they know, they are listening to their parents and their aunties and their cousins talk. They're on TikTok, they're on social media, like they know. And so when I had that precious 30 minutes, I really wanted it to mean something. And luckily for me as the music teacher, I got to use music to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. And you you touched on a little bit um, issues like representation and equity um, as you started talking about your your current population of students. So can you talk a little bit about how, you know, issues like representation and equity, how they relate to your life um, personally and, and professionally? Like how important are those issues to you, both in your personal and professional life? Well, I think especially especially as classically trained musicians 
the European dead white male composer is, is put up on a pedestal, right? That we're all supposed to achieve the things that these mostly men wrote hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Not to say that that's not all fabulous music because it is, <laughs> but there is a literal whole world of other men and women of different cultures and backgrounds that have just as incredible music out there for us to learn. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember starting in elementary in 2017, when I was trying to like, I don't know if it was when we were doing Nutcracker or what activity we were doing, but I wanted pictures of kids playing music. And all I could find was mostly blonde haired, blue eyed white children playing things. And it's like, not that blue haired, blonde eyed white children don't play music, but they don't look like my kids. And I want my kids to see themselves in what we do in our class and in their everyday life and know that when they come to music, they, they as just as who they are when they walk in the room, they are going to be safe and celebrated. And they'll know too that I'm, I'm interested and I care. And I think that that goes both ways. You know, we teachers are like, well, kids have to respect us and they need to follow the rules. I mean, yes, that's true, but it goes both ways. And um, I really, I mean, I, I'm, I'm never going to achieve it, right? I don't think we ever achieve being equitable or um, having enough representation, especially if we are not of the culture, the dominant culture of the kids we teach, like for me. Mm. Um, but it is my mission to always try. I, um, it, not every single book, but most books that I bring in, I try even, I, I try to have it be about a black or brown character because my students are black and brown. And I do have a few white students. And certainly we, you know, we talked about Mozart at one point this year. Um, we talked about Tchaikovsky when we learned about the Nutcracker last month. It's not that we don't talk about those things, but it's, it, it's certainly not the majority of my content because you know, my kids, they get that as soon as they walk out of my or as soon as they walk out of school and they go live their life, they're inundated with that. And, um, I just, how, as, as white women, how could we even imagine what that feels like? Mm -hmm. You know, we can't. And so it's, it's, I, I, I'm a lot, just at a loss for words because it is such a huge issue and it's so important. And I think that in the music world, in music ed, and you, you see people, there's a movement now, I think, of teachers really trying to be more equitable and trying to have more representation and doing uh, more music and activities with black and brown composers and musicians. And that's great. But traditionally, it has just been so whitewashed and not only does that not benefit my students, it's not even interesting anymore. Mm -hmm. Like as if benefiting your students wasn't enough, wasn't enough of a reason. Like there's just other stuff, you know, like how many times can we sing? Of course, like it's, it's evading me now, but um, you know, just like how many times can we sing Yankee doodle, right? Like 
in an elementary class or or whatever it is, it's just there's other music, there's other composers, and there's other ways to connect with our kids. And I think it's our job, especially if we're from outside the culture of the majority of our students and our community, to do that homework and to find out um, find out other ways and other people that we can celebrate that look like our students that are from the same regions or religions, or even in my case, in New Orleans, in neighborhood, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I really believe that that's our job. And if we're not trying to do that, I don't know why we're here. Yeah. And I, I mean, you bring up a lot of interesting points and I just found myself like nodding my head the entire time you were talking. Um, because I think when we, as music educators, you know, we are kind of, and this happens with any teacher, we instinctively want to teach the way that we were taught and the content that we were taught. And we need to start breaking that mold. And like you said, doing your research and really like finding out what your students' culture is Mm -hmm. and where they are coming from and what's actually going to be relatable to them. Because kids want to learn things that are relatable to their life and that they can relate to. And if they're struggling to relate to something, they're not going to engage nearly as much as they would if it's something that actually relates to their society, their culture. And that's when we have to like break that cycle, right? Because I grew up in an elementary general music classroom where I was just singing traditional American folk songs like Yankee Doodle and things like that. And that's stereotypically what has been done for so long. But when you think back to when that started, you know, so many years ago, A, schools were obviously segregated and B, that music was actually applicable to what society was. People were actually singing those little traditional American folk tunes at home or at church or things like that. So it actually like apply to those students' lives. But what we just keep doing is every generation, we just copy and paste the same content. And as a band director myself, like I find myself sometimes struggling when it comes to method books um, for my beginning band students, because a lot of them were written in the thirties, the forties, the fifties. And, you know, and some of the tunes that are in these books are offensive, like 10 little Indians is in there and things like that. I'm like, I'm not teaching my kids to play that tune. That is not applicable to their life. And it's racist. Right. Right. So it's not okay. It's, it's really hard sometimes to, to not want to be in that mold because in our brain, you know, that's the way we were taught. And so we instinctively want to do that. I mean, the method book that I grew up playing when I was in beginning band has tunes like 10 little Indians in it. And I remember learning it when I was like, you know, nine, 10 years old. And so for me, I'm trying to, you know, do that work, do that research and find different things that I can teach kids that are actually going to be applicable. But I think that's the thing. We just have to break that mold. We have to break that cycle because we instinctively want to do what's comfortable. Exactly. It takes work and it's not comfortable. Um, I was speaking to some college students a couple of months ago and they asked a question about, you know, well, kind of like, what are the challenges as a white person? I was teaching, um, there's a book called The Proudest Blue about Ibtihaj Muhammad, the first black and Muslim woman to medal in the Olympics for fencing. And she wore her hijab and she was the first person to wear a hijab and compete. And so she wrote this book called The Proudest Blue. 
that is about her and her sister and how her sister wears her job to school the first time. And so um, I shared that with my students last year during Women's History Month. And I was sharing it with these college students. And he was like, well, you know, do you think it's okay for you to share these lessons? Like, cause that's not your culture. And I mean, look, it is uncomfortable sometimes, but not sometimes. I mean, there's an element of uncomfortability all the time because the truth is I might make a mistake. That is just the truth. And that's the risk that I take when I do this. But my other option is to not do it and to continue doing the, you know, European American folk songs and not trying. So it's like, I guess it's everyone's, you know, um, kind of battle to weigh out for themselves. You know, do you want to just be silent and and keep doing things the, the old way? Or do you want to take a risk? And the thing is, like, sometimes you will say something wrong. And when you do, you have to own it and try to fix it if you can and commit to yourself and to whoever you offended to doing it better. I mean, you can't do this work and not make mistakes. And if we're afraid of making mistakes, the work's never going to get done. Um but it doesn't mean it's not uncomfortable or not scary, but you just have to do it anyway. Right. Or, or I have, I feel like I have to do it anyway. You know, I, and I was thinking back about what you were saying about um, the American folk tunes and how that was kind of the standard and like, really, right. That's from Europe, right. Eurocentric mm-hmm. Western music. When you think about American music, American music is black music yeah. and being a teacher here in new Orleans, you know, I've only been here five years, And I've learned so much and, you know, country music, rock music, jazz literally came from Congo Square in the Treme neighborhood in New Orleans, right? You know what? A 10 minute drive from my school. And so if we really want to be American, then we need to be teaching that. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it only, it makes sense if you think about it that way, like, why wouldn't we be doing that? Um, but you know, again, it, you gotta be willing to do the work and the homework and be willing to get it wrong. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you bring up a good point, you know, talking about how American music is black music and that, you know, when we talk about this idea of, like I was saying before, a lot of students, like back when schools were segregated, they were learning music that uh, applied to their culture. And so white schools were learning traditional, you know, white European that turned into, you know, our very stereotypical folk songs. But when we started integrating schools, we didn't integrate the content. We just like took set group of people, brought them into other set group of people. And then we forced, you know, white Eurocentric content on all students Um, instead of just white students. And so I think in a way that is one of the big holes in education still. And I think we're finally catching. Yeah. And we're finally catching up kind of sort of now in 2022 with the content that we're teaching, but you know, we're still met with adversity. We're still met with people in the community or parents who don't like what we're teaching in our classrooms or things like that and cause it ends up being an entire political argument you know we see what's happening in the news all the time with what's being taught in schools and you know I can't imagine teaching at a school like that I wouldn't have a job (laughs) absolutely I mean I, I couldn't you know I like I actually when um my first year when I was you know starting my account so 2020, 2021. And I would, you know, share my, uh, 
lessons on Facebook music ed groups. And um, I would get some, you know, pretty uh, interesting comments from folks who believe that stuff. And I just thought like, I can't believe those people are going to be in front of kids tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Like how devastating for those children. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say I get it right all the time. Cause I certainly don't. I certainly don't. But um, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm glad that I uh, work in a community that um, celebrates equity and celebrates, you know, Black Lives Matter and believes it and stands by it. Um, Cause I, 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 yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make it <laughs> in a different um, school for sure. And I, I have so much, I have so much sympathy for, for history teachers too. I think, you know, they get the real, yes, the real shaft end of that issue, history teachers and English teachers too, with what books they're teaching in class. I know that's like a big issue right now. Um, and certain subjects that they have to teach, you know, throughout the curriculum. And what people don't understand is like, most subjects they're having to follow state standards. So even these teachers aren't even necessarily picking, you know, specific content areas that they're supposed to be teaching. So, you know, you can blame the teachers all you want, but it's actually the state that makes all those decisions about curriculum. Exactly. And that's something that's like, I think so special about being a music teacher, even if you're in a more conservative district, is that you really get to write the script right? Mm-hmm. And make the choices. Now, some people obviously, or some districts and states have more um, kind of oversight into what's happening in music rooms. But for the most part, I've kind of, in, at all of my schools, I've been fortunate enough where I am the person in charge of what I am planning and, you know, what the sequence or scope and sequence is. And mm-hmm. um, with that freedom, I think we have a responsibility, right? Unless someone is, unless you're in that position, like these English and history teachers, right? If you have that freedom, like take that, take that license to go like shake things up and do some good and like do good by your kids. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. Uh, You were starting to talk about um, some of the lessons that uh, you've shared that you've created and shared out in music and Facebook groups and, and the um, social media accounts that you have um, as a yeah. teacher. So, um, and that's the way that I found you. So can you talk a little bit about uh, your social media presence um, as an educator and some of the resources that you have just in case there are teachers out there who want to check out um, some of your content? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if we rewind back to March, 2020, when um, we all went home and started learning virtually, my school, you know, I think it took everybody a couple of weeks to figure out how are we gonna do this? How are we gonna teach kids across the screen? And um, my school leadership team asked me and the other enrichment teachers to make lessons, video lessons that they could post on the Instagram to share with families. And, um, I ended up making a, I first, I made my first video, which was how to make a water xylophone and, um, had a lot of fun with it. I mean, we had a lot of time <laughs> on our hands back in those days. <laughs> and so it was really cool. Cause I got to learn how to, you know, do video and editing and all of that. 
And so anyway, I made this how to make a water xylophone for my first lesson. And I shared it on my personal uh, Facebook page. And I just shared it because I thought it was cool and fun. And this is what I'm doing for school, you know, which I, I always kind of shared a little bit about what was going on, but I didn't really think too much of it. And um, so many people like friends of mine, especially friends with kids or coworkers with kids like, oh my God, Natasha, like, thank you. We tried this. And I was, people were sending me videos of their water xylophone and I was like, oh my gosh, that's cool. And like, I don't know, I think like 1500 people or something saw it on Facebook. And like, for me, that was like a ton. <laughs> and um, then time went on and I made a couple more videos and they were just too long to kind of post on Instagram as like one full video. And I was like, well, I'll just put it on YouTube. And I still wasn't thinking much of it. I was like, well, this would just be easier. They could just then send the video link out to kids and to families or put it on their home Canvas homepage or whatever. And um, a month or so, that's, I'm sorry, that's not true. Th that was in March of 2020 or April of 2020 is when I actually started the account. And then um, I made videos through the end of the school year and took a month or two off. And then we came back in July of 2020. And um, my first lesson was a, uh, it was like a back to school lesson. And I was reviewing quarter note, eighth note and quarter rest with my, I think it was like third and fourth graders, maybe second, third and fourth at the time. And at the end of that lesson, I did a body percussion video to happy and Pharrell's happy. And, um, it like, I mean, I, I don't know if it blew up really, but kind of for me, it blew up. You know, I think it's up to like 87,000 or 83,000 views, which again, still for me is like a ton of people. And um, yeah, it got all of this, like all of these views and people were emailing and sharing. And I was like, oh, you know, maybe there's something to this. And so like when that encouraged me kind of to make more and get more into it. And um, so I just started sharing more. And then every week when I would make my videos for my kids, I would post it on my YouTube and it was literally exactly what I was doing with kids that week. And, um, I would put it on YouTube and then I would go into the Facebook groups and I would, uh, share it with the music teachers there. Um, at the same time, somewhere when I first started making those videos in, um, spring of 2020, I started my teacher Instagram account and, kind of used that to kind of document my process and, you know, share videos that way and connect with other teachers. Uh, I found, you know, when I think back to 2017, when I got my first elementary job, I was at a different school than I am now. I was there for one year before coming to my current school. And I walked into the music room and there was a beat up medium-sized U-Haul moving box that had been through several moves and I opened it up and there was random loose leaf sheet music. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, uh, what, <laughs> where's my stuff? Luckily I took a few more steps. I went a cabinet and there were boom whackers. I still don't know what the hell boom whacker was at the time. I mean, obviously I figured it out pretty quick, but, um, I, there was nothing in that stupid box <laughs> that I could use. 
Um, and so I YouTubed video boom marker videos and, uh, I spent, I don't know. I was actually thinking before our interview today, um, how much money I spent on teacher paid teachers my first year, 500, $600 of like my own mm. personal money. Cause yeah. not only did I not have resources, but I never taught elementary and that is, it's just a whole new world. And so, yes, it was fun to like get the likes and the shares and whatever, but I also felt really passionate about getting, getting resources out to people because I needed them so desperately when I first started teaching music, elementary music, because I had no idea what the hell I was doing. I'm talking about no idea, no resources. And I mean, I used to wake up at four o'clock every morning and just play and play and play, like scour the internet for free stuff. And then, and okay, I got to go teach a pay teacher again. I got to download something. Okay, let's try this today. Okay, that was a flop. Great. Back to teach and pay teachers. Here's another $10 and another five hours on YouTube. And so in addition to sharing my stuff, because it's fun to share, I felt uh, passionate about giving people stuff to use at this time when a lot of people were struggling with digital or virtual learning and kind of just giving back to a community that has given me so much. Um, and it's kind of just grown from there. I've, um, I'm hoping to get a, you know, a few more videos out soon. I probably have like eight or nine prepped and ready to go. I just am back in a regular full-time teaching this year in person. And so it's been harder to, to get those up, but it's, they're definitely there um, and need to get, Santa brought me some new recording equipment. So <laughs> I need to, um, I need to put it to use, but yeah, you know, it's kind of twofold. I truly starting the Instagram page, starting the YouTube was really just, Instagram was about documenting my journey, um, really for me and to connect with other music teachers and like, are you doing okay? How do we do this? You know what I mean? It wasn't mm -hmm. about, um, any kind of like fame or attention or anything fame that sounds silly, but you know what I mean? It wasn't about yeah. attention or any of that. Um, I just kind of wanted to have a little, you know, a, like a little digital virtual scrapbook going on. Um, and then the YouTube channel was just because I didn't know how to get lessons to my kids. Um, but it's been really cool. You know, I've connected with people all over the world, teachers, kids, parents teaching their kids at home. Um, friends of mine who have little ones will send me videos of their kids doing a lesson. And it's really sweet, you know, and it's especially again, going back to that living through this time of separation and isolation to be able to connect with people that way and share what I love to do. And that, you know, making folks, teachers lives easier, kids life a little brighter for a few minutes, you know, that's been um, a really positive, loving thing to come out of a really dreadful time in history. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So if people want to check out your work and, you know, your YouTube channel and your Instagram and that sort of thing, could you plug your, all of your wonderful social media yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, my YouTube channel is music with miss P and you, my Instagram is music with miss M S underscore P. And I would say those are the two I am most active on. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Natasha Perrine. And I also have a blog that I've just started a music with miss P.com. Um, 
I have an article up there about creating community and some great ways to get your classes going either at the beginning of the year or if you're like me and on a quarterly schedule. In fact, I just saw a new group of kids today. So I was working the steps <laughs> that I blogged about, um, all you know, tried and true things that I've learned uh, in my own classroom. And then I have a, another blog up there about using uh, mindfulness and breath work, which is something I've started this year to start my classes with, mm-hmm. um, you know, coming back, but thinking back to your question about like the SDL, um, mm-hmm. I, I try to do that through with the books. I think that those kind of go hand in hand in my lessons. Um, but when I, you know, coming back this year and having everybody in person, kids are really, having to relearn how to human. I'm yep. sure you've seen that Absolutely. Here with your middle schoolers and high schoolers. And I mean, that is no joke. And I feel like every educator who is teaching right now and who has taught previously can feel the difference and has seen the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm really trying to, you know, if I go back to my training and the boom, 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 rehearsal schedule, this, that, make it perfect, do this, perform, ta-da, applause, bow, you know, everything's like so fast and have to get through it, have to do this, have to do that. I have really tried to slow it down this year and, you know, starting with that breath work in as soon as kids come in, whether it's a breathing exercise or mindfulness meditation exercise, um, and, trying not, I've always overplanned because, well, I'm a recovering control freak <laughs> and yep. uh, same here. <laughs> same here. you know, and idle, idle time means idle hands means problems. Yep. Um, but what I've learned over the years and people have tried to tell me this in various ways, but it really has not been until this year that I really could feel it. Cause I really committed to it. But when we are so worried about rushing through what we think we must teach in whatever lesson, we get ourselves so worked up and our nervous systems start going on overdrive. And I know it might sound woo woo to some people, but there's science behind this. That energy literally activates the energy in our students and that, mm-hmm. you know, the atmosphere in the room and you know, I think we've all had our own worries and fears about teaching during COVID, about dealing with these students who have, you know, lost, you know, people talk about academic loss. Let's talk about social skill loss, yep. <laughs> you know, and coming back and that's enough. And we we're even talking about, you know, challenges with content, right? We're just talking about being human together and the slowing down doing those breathing exercises, not caring if I get through everything in my plan, allowing times for kids to sit and think about something or God forbid, even ask, you know, questions or have a conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to be so afraid of that because I didn't want to lose control, but not only has giving that up allowed me to calm down. It's helped my classroom be more chill. And it's, I think, helping both my students and me adjust to this crazy world we're living in and going to school in, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And there's some uh, videos on my Instagram of breathing exercises uh, that you could try with your kids. Um, 
that have been, you know, have been great in for me and mine. Yeah, that's awesome. And I guess my final question for you, um, it kind of try to end everything on a, on a positive note and the forward thinking sort of mindset. So what is something that you are looking forward to? And it could be either personal or professional and, or does not, does not matter, but something that you're looking forward to. I professionally, um, at the end of February, fingers crossed, um, we are going to have our first in-person performance Yay! for Black History Month. Yeah. That's awesome. So I'm really excited. Hopefully everyone follows the rules, wears their mask, right? Like does all the things, gets tested. Mm-hmm. But um, I know that that will be really special uh, for our, for our school and for my kids. And so I'm um, I just got that group of kids today. And so we're, we're looking forward to that. That's awesome. I want to thank you so much for being on the show and for talking about, you know, your life, both personal and professional. I think there's just so many takeaways here from our conversation. And I encourage anybody who's listening to check out all of your wonderful resources because you put a lot out there and you're very generous in in everything that you put out there. I know some teachers, uh, you know, start to get a little self-conscious and don't want to, you know, share um, what they do and and everything like that. But I think it's so great that you're so open and and willing to share. And I I think that provides more of a sense of our music education community in that way and allows us to kind of connect with one another. So I want to thank you you for for all of that. that. Thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, we're all in it together, right? Like, absolutely. Yeah. I really appreciate you having me. This is so cool. Thank you.